This morning we come to the fourth in our series on the last seven words of Jesus from the cross. And the word is to be forsaken, to be abandoned, from Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 to 46. Today's word might not be a big problem for those of us who have been Christians for a while. We've read the passage many times. We're very familiar with these words. Often they come around in Easter time. We know what they mean, I think. I'm assuming that most of us do that. But spare a thought for those who are perhaps wavering or tinkering along the edges of Christianity or perhaps who have just started their Christian walk and they, they struggle with these words. They might have a real problem with this sad, it is a sad verse that we read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama Sabachthani in Aramaic. Now this statement is, is, is one of the, the most debated sentences and phrases in Scripture. Both Mark and Matthew have this agonising cry in the Gospels. And out, out of all the prayers that Jesus, out of all the things that he could have said from the cross, There are many psalms that he could have recited, but he recited this one. Why? Which psalm is it, you're asking? Well, it is Psalm 22. But uh, we're going to be looking at a little bit more, but we want to look at it from the three perspectives. The first one is the human perspective. The second is the prophetic. And lastly, the divine eternal perspective. So let us look at it from the human perspective. Because as far as relationships go, nothing gets more perfect than the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Trinity, God the three in one. So why would the Father abandon the Son? What had Jesus done to deserve that? If he was doing the Father's will, why should he be forsaken? Yes, he was dying for the sins of the world, but he had personally done nothing wrong. Surely, surely God would not abandon him in his hour of of greatest need. That just doesn't seem fair, doesn't seem right. It's in fact... It looks and sounds pretty cruel. Now, many people would have this type of of thinking. They were asking questions. Why would it do that? And that's fair enough. From a human perspective, it's fair enough. Now, there really is no need to add dramatic effect to to the scene there at Calvary because 
There are many words, there are many paintings, there are many poems and songs that have been written and movies that have been made about the scene at Calvary. And to be fair, to be honest, I don't think any of them actually do it the justice that it deserves. It's just, it is beyond human understanding and comprehension. Furthermore, these words that are spoken during the three hours There are three hours of supernatural darkness that comes over the land between midday and three o'clock in the afternoon. That just adds to the dramatic effect, doesn't it? It's all dark. And these words are spoken during the darkness. It is usually during the darkness that we feel most lonely, isn't it? most vulnerable. How many of you have staying awake at night just hoping for the dawn to come? And let's recall that throughout the scriptures there is this constant battle between light and darkness. The Gospel of John says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There are many passages like this. And Jesus, the light of the world, came into the world he created and it would appear that, for a moment at least, that the darkness overcame. John was there at the cross and he knew the end of the story. That's why he's able to declare the darkness did not overcome it. But let's say you didn't know how the story ends. As humans, we don't know what tomorrow brings. I can't make any promises to you about tomorrow. You don't know about tomorrow either. And you might be going through a darkness in your life at the moment, whatever it is. It can take on many forms. And you're waiting for the dawn to break. But there is no greater darkness than the one that Jesus experienced. And out of the seven sayings from the cross, seven sayings from the cross, and I gave this some thought, five of them are thoroughly human. By being thoroughly human, I mean that they could be spoken of by human beings. The only ones that are the exclusive domain of the eternal, of the divine, are his promise of paradise to the thief. Today you will be with me in paradise. And the cry that we're going to be looking at next Sunday, which is, it is finished. No one can actually say that except Jesus himself. The rest of them are us. They are our prayers. They are our longings of heart. They are a physical need. So when Jesus asked, why have you forsaken me? He's speaking for us because 
That is how we sometimes feel in our interactions with God. And there are many Psalms that ask this question. They are called laments. They are bringing before God the deepest cries of the human heart, trying to make sense of their situation, their trials, their suffering. That is thoroughly human. Now let's move on to the prophetic. Long before Jesus said these words, King David wrote them down. And like I said, many of the Psalms are in the, they're classified as laments, but it's not just the Psalms. There are many other the prophetic books that speak about laments. Now many of the Psalms that David wrote are related to specific episodes in his life. Some of them are, for example, when he was being persecuted by Saul. And you, you know, you, you relate the words to the psalm, to the events of his life. So we can account for, for a, quite a, a few of the psalms this way. But no particular incident that we know of in David's life accounts for this psalm, Psalm 22. And therefore, our minds are are transported, they're cast straight away to Calvary. And as a child, as a child, Jesus, as a Jewish child, Jesus would have memorised the Psalms and many of the passages. In fact, the kids, by the time they they, they probably reach, uh, you know, the age of 12, they memorised most of the Old Testament. Actually, memorised. This day and age we struggle to memorise a verse, let alone chapters and books and whole, you know, for Psalm 119, they would memorise all of that. It's no big deal. So Jesus would have, would have been memorising this particular Psalm 22. Can you imagine Jesus reading, memorising this psalm and somewhere along the line as he matures, as he grows, saying, this is about me. I'm going to have to go through this. This is describing my life. And would have to do it on a cross. And when Jesus uttered the opening phrase of Psalm 22, because this is exactly how the psalm starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't meant to be a standalone statement. And you're probably thinking, Paul, what do you mean? Well, the rabbis during Jesus' day used a technique that was later called remez. This is when a person quotes a portion of literature and he expects the hearers to know the rest of the story. So let's, let's give it a try. Uh, in, in, let's, about music, for example, pop music or popular music. Yesterday. Okay. Let's go to the Bible now. Um. <laughs> Our Father. Okay, that's remiss because it triggers straight away. There, there is a teaching technique. So you would assume... 
that the person already has the knowledge, already, it's already triggering. You don't have to go and explain it, every part of it. Because there is Bible knowledge, they are thoroughly soaked in Scripture already. So therefore, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Then everybody else who was around there will actually understand that this is not just a statement, it's actually the whole psalm that he's living through. Jesus used this technique of Remez as a rabbi many times. Not just here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Now, for David, these words were, were not a lapse in his faith. But, but through his struggle, he is, he is lost. He is disoriented. Somehow he feels that in a, in a practical sense, God has removed his protective cover over him just at the worst possible time, just as the enemy closes in. And this is the time when you cry out to God and all that you get in reply is silence. This is why Philip Yancey, Christian author, wrote a book with the title Where is God When It Hurts? And in the mystery of the incarnation, incarnation, God becoming man, Fully man, fully God. In this prayer from his heart, Jesus joined with David and every other believer that has ever suffered estrangement and and, and silence and and, and distance, abandoned by God. And that is why he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like I said, the psalm doesn't stop there. David goes on to say, in verse 12, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. The uh, Amos, the prophet, talks about the cows of Bashan. So the bulls of Bashan, Bashan must be married to the cows of Bashan. And, and uh, if you ever go to the Holy Land... Bashan is actually the region of the Golan Heights. So that region there, it's, it's a pastoral area. That's where a lot of the, the cows and bulls hang around. So he's saying here, many bulls surround me. The strong bulls of Bashan circle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me, you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. 
I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. See what I'm saying? Like it, it, we, we can't connect the, 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 the struggles of David to, to any episode. This is way beyond anything that he himself experienced. And often in real life, we see how the strong close in on the weak. Sensing a a vulnerability, they work in packs like animals, bulls, lions, dogs, hyenas. Just watch the behaviour of the media and you know what a pack of dogs many times, how they behave, closing in on the vulnerable. In the school ground, you watch the same behaviour. Kids taunting the weakest ones, making fun of the ones who can't play the games or the ones who can be easily intimidated. You watch it in a workplace, in a building site, in a prison. After the trial by Pilate, Jesus was handed over to the soldiers. They took him back to the barracks to taunt him some more. They put one of their own scarlet legionnaires' robes on him and made a crown of long thorns from the acacia tree. The acacia thorns are about that long. And, And the crown was supposed to imitate the the crown that the, that the emperors wore, like the, the rays of the sun. And there were spikes that were pushed into his flesh. And they mocked him. They called him the king of the Jews. Yeah, I know. People have a tremendous capacity to love. But boy the humans have a tremendous capacity for cruelty as well. The soldiers laughed at Jesus because he was weak and they were strong and so it appeared that way. It made them feel stronger and tougher to laugh and mock him. He was about to die piece of meat, doesn't matter. If only they knew. If only they knew. All that Jesus had to do was disappear. Not just the soldiers, but the whole of the planetary system. It's all he had to do. It didn't. This is why Psalm 22 is a a picture of the death of Christ. A prophecy so descriptive and accurate with details all written a thousand years before the event. A thousand years. 
And this is way before crucifixion was used. The, the Romans weren't even in the picture. Crucifixion wasn't even used as an instrument of execution by any of the empires around that time. But the language of David is, 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 is stunning. It is, it is there. You're taken there a thousand years later. This is why Peter in the book of Acts describes King David as a prophet. The Holy Spirit of God inspired David to describe the sufferings of our Saviour in terms that weren't even part of his own experience. For Jesus, however, it was a psalm that he would have grown up with and it was a psalm that he would grow into and eventually fully experience at the cross. Nothing surpasses this, folks. Nothing. The Son of God, who knew no sin, made to die a criminal's death. And this is why, to try and make even more sense of it, we need to go to the divine, the eternal perspective. Having looked at the human and the prophetic Let's try and understand the sense by which Jesus was forsaken by God. It is certain that God approved his work. It is certain that Jesus was innocent. He had done nothing to forfeit the favour of God. As God's own son, holy, harmless, undefiled, obedient, God still loved the son. In none of these senses could God have forsaken him. Yet there was a task to perform, a mission to accomplish, a sacrifice to be done. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul conveys the, the idea that Christ was forsaken during this, this precise moment on the cross. And this is what he says in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The very type of death that Christ experienced was associated with a curse. So as Jesus bore our guilt and shame, God the Father turned his head because of the sin he saw carried by the Son, enveloping his Son, even though it was not his own sin. And you have to understand the holiness of the Father. Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too, are too pure to look on evil. Your eyes are simply too pure, too, too holy to look on evil. And Jesus was covered in evil. So it's quite likely that Jesus, in his human nature, felt forsaken and that God the Father turned his face 
while the Son bore our sins on the cross. He was made a sin offering, died in our place on our account to bring us near to God. It was this that it was this aspect that intensified the sufferings and part of why Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the, the manifestation, it was the manifestation of God's hatred of sin. God could not simply just say, Well, let's just work this out. Let's just forget about it. No, it's the man- this is how much God hates sin. That he was, even at that moment, be willing to forsake his son because of his hatred of sin. And yes, I'm trying to describe something that is indescribable. And in some unexplained way, what Jesus experienced, that terrible hour. And the suffering he endured was due to you and me. Because God placed the sins of the world on his son. So for a time, Jesus felt the desolation of being unconscious of his father's presence. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it was at this time that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One One of the most beautiful verses in all of scripture. But that cry of pain is also a cry of faith. Now, I know and you know, in those desperate moments, we we may not be able to pray, Lord, I know your will is best. Or Lord, I know that everything is going to be okay. Uh, In those moments, we can't even get there. All we're asking is, Lord, why? and then wait for an answer. And like Jesus, the the, the psalmist, King David, asked God a question and waited for an answer. The psalm starts, why have you forsaken me? And then the psalm ends with, I will tell your name to the brethren. Sooner or later he he expresses the hope. He doesn't end, he doesn't finish in despair. He clings to hope that God will do something. And that's the key to Jesus' cry. It is a cry of pain, but it is directed to God. And he might have felt that that, that God abandoned him, but deep down in his heart he knew that God was, was listening, was still listening. He didn't hear an answer back, but he was still there. He was listening to his cry of pain. And come Easter morning, obviously God, we know the end of the story, that's what I'm saying, obviously. But at that time, it wasn't obvious. 
the God of raising from the dead. Now, a word about about laments. Um, I I need to... I've done a whole series in the Psalms quite a few years ago and, I, and I, we, we covered a little bit more about the, the laments. But I, I want to talk a little bit about laments because I want these to be a part of your life as well. There are a lot of laments in the Bible. In fact, there is a whole book dedicated to laments called Lamentations. And simply stated, lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Suffering and pain is not abnormal. In fact, it is actually quite normal. It's a normal part of living in a fallen world. I know that this is hard to accept. I know. I know, right? Because we are to be happy. It's even in the American Constitution that that is the goal. Really? Okay. The highest goal, but for the believer. Our goal is not to be happy. Our hope is in God. Our goal is to give him glory, whatever the circumstance. So we are, we we tend to live our lives between the two poles of of a life and, and trust in God's sovereign care Or the other pole where we simply just give in to despair. And sometimes we just want to give because of the difficulties we are experiencing. We just want to give God the silent treatment. I'm not going to talk to you. No. Mm-mm. You fall into despair. I can't do this. Or denial. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. It's cool. It's cool. Everything's fine. You know, that stoic resistance. But lament actually encourages us to talk to God about our struggles so that we can reaffirm our trust in Him. Now, I, what I'm going to share with you now is not mine. I borrowed it from somebody else. But it gives us some helpful steps in this, in this painful journey. So the first step is turn to prayer. When pain creates struggles and hard questions, lament invites us to talk to God about it. Even if it's messy, if it's awkward, you don't know what to pray or what to say, lamenting is better than faking it or not talking to him at all and just giving God the silent treatment. That's the first step. Turn to prayer. Secondly, bring your complaints. Lament invites us to bluntly tell God our questions, our fears, our frustrations. And the only way to avail ourselves of his grace is to be honest with him, to declare it, to be honest. He knows our hearts. We can't actually fake it. 
But we need to know that we can't fake it. And, and be honest with him, knowing that in the laments, many of these laments in Scripture are gutsy questions. In Psalm 77, for example, verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Have you forgotten to be gracious, O Lord? That's a pretty gutsy statement, isn't it? Bring your complaints. Thirdly, ask boldly. Calling on God to act in accordance with his promises runs parallel with our complaints. Ask him to intervene. God, please, do something. Because pain can create disappointment. But lament provides the language that dares to hope. Lament invites us to ask for help again and again and again. And fourthly, choose to trust. Choose to trust. The destination for all laments is an affirmation of trust in God. This, the, the honest prayers provide a pathway for, for hurting people to, to move through the stages of their pain. Because you see, laments are not a, a cul-de-sac of, of, of sorrow where you just, you know, curl up in the fetal position and just end there in, 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 in sorrow and just basically hope to die. Well, I mean, it's, a cult, it's not a cul-de-sac, it's, a, it's, it's an avenue, it's a, it's, a, it's a road that goes somewhere. It's a conduit of renewed faith. This is where laments leads us back to trusting in the grace of God. I, I, I know that we, laments are not very popular in the, in the prosperity movement, are they? Because we're all supposed to be conquerors and, and you know, it, it's fantastic. My life is absolutely fantastic. Oh, absolutely. If you're, all, if you're not with it, then you're a loser. I don't want you to be a loser. I want, no, no, it goes on and on. Come on, man. Read the scriptures. And these words are amazing because when Jesus cries out, Why have you forsaken me? It is Psalm 22. And, and the, the words of, the, of Psalm 22 in the original Hebrew, the, the literal phrase how the psalm ends, Psalm 22, is literally, it is finished. Oh, where have I heard that before? This psalm both opens and closes with a word of Jesus from the cross. More about that later. There is nothing left to do 
Once you've submitted your prayers to God, your laments, all you can do is wait for the Lord to act. And in fact, the Lord has done it. That's exactly what it declares. The Lord has done it. Brothers and sisters, when we feel down, when we are low, forgotten, turn to God, humble yourselves before God, tell him how you feel, be honest. He can take it. He's pretty big. He can take it. He doesn't get scared off by people asking why in the darkest moments of life. We actually encourage to approach his throne of grace. Be bold. To ask, why have you forsaken me? And yes, perhaps at that moment, and then in the next few moments, it will not take away the suffering, but you will suffer differently. You will suffer differently because we know that God is listening to our pain. He is there with us. That is his promise. I am with you always. May God bless us to trust in him more and more each day to turn our cares, our troubles, our pain, our complaints over to him. Because he does love us. He does care for us. Amen.